You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 311 of The Corbett Report podcast, 9-11 Suspects, which is being released on September 11th, 2016. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. 9-11 was a crime. This shouldn't be a controversial statement, but given how 9-11 was framed as a terrorist attack or even an act of war from the moment that it occurred, it somehow is. If we lived in a world of truth and justice, 9-11 would have been approached as a crime to be solved rather than an attack to be responded to. Unfortunately, we don't live in such a world, but let's imagine for a moment that we did. If there were some crusading district attorney who actually wanted to prosecute the crimes of 9-11, how would he begin? Where would he start to unravel a plot so immense, one involving so many layers of obfuscation and the active collusion of some of the most powerful members of the perennial ruling class of America, the deep state? Like the prosecution of a mafia kingpin, it's highly unlikely that a prosecutor would put the suspected mastermind of the plot on trial first. Such a vast and intricate operation would be picked apart from the outside, starting with people on the periphery of the plot who could be forced to testify under oath and who could provide leads further up the ladder. As more and more of the picture is filled in, the case against the inner clique who ran the operation would begin to strengthen, and gradually more and more central figures could be brought to trial. As I say, if the events of the last 15 years have taught us anything, it's that we do not live in such a world. But still, we are trying the crimes of 9-11 in the court of public opinion, and there are still untold millions who think of 9-11 truth as a fringe movement driven by rash speculation and unwarranted leaps of logic. What if we prosecuted some of these peripheral figures— the ones who are demonstrably and provably involved in the events of that day or the cover-up of those crimes, in that court of public opinion. Over the nine years of the Corbett Report's existence, we've looked at many figures who no doubt feature more prominently in the 9-11 plot itself from an operational standpoint. Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and Larry Silverstein and Dove Zakheim and Paul Bremer and Richard Armitage, etc., 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 Today, we'll look at some of the other suspects in that crime, not ringleaders or masterminds, not even people who were likely to know about the plot ahead of time, but those who helped cover up those crimes for the real perpetrators. Are you ready? Let's go. Suspect 1. Former Mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani. After stepping down as Mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani tried to launch himself as a national political leader on the back of the single defining event of his career. September 11th, September 11th. Terrorists or terrorism, September 11th. The flames of hell emanating from those buildings. September 11, fallen towers of the World Trade Center. Terrorists, September 11, 2001. In the end, he failed miserably, with voters immediately seeing his ploy for what it was. Base political pandering. 9-11 was bad. I agree with that. I can't believe how easy this is. 
But what many do not realize is that Giuliani's case is not just that of another ghoulish politician parading on the corpses of those who died on his watch for his own political gain. On the day of 9-11, while the remains of the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7 were still smoldering, one of Mayor Giuliani's first concerns was clearing away the evidence from the crime scene. We were able to move 120 dump trucks out of the city last night, which will give you a sense of the work that was done overnight. It's wild out here. They just keep coming. Look. It doesn't stop. There's more. I think keep thinking it's at the end, and it's not. Despite reassurances that the rapid removal of the evidence from Ground Zero was important for emergency access, this process went far beyond merely clearing a path for rescue workers. As Eric Lawyer, founder of Firefighters for 9-11 Truth, points out, the massive operation to haul away over 1.5 million tons of debris and to sell much of the steel to Chinese firm Bao Steel at discount prices was not just an overzealous approach to clearing the area, but was itself a crime. 9-11 was the greatest loss of life and property damage in U.S. fire history. This should have been the most protected, preserved, over-tested, and thorough investigation of a crime scene in world history. Sadly, it was not. What was it? Well, we know from their own admission, the majority of the evidence was destroyed. I, like Richard said, 22 years of experience, I've seen a lot of crime scenes, I've never seen anything like this in my life. <clears throat> I, was, I was out of the site, I saw trucks leaving faster than you know anywhere I've ever seen, but I accepted it at the time, and for years I accepted it because it was a recovery and rescue operation and that's normal to have something like that going. Again, we never seen anything like it, but that was expected. What I didn't know for years, what was going on behind the scenes was that evidence was being destroyed when it was shipped off. Um, by their own admission, um, Tower 7 investigation, this investigation at Tower 7 had no physical evidence. How do you investigate a crime when you've destroyed all the evidence? It doesn't make sense. Um, they also admit that they refused to test the explosives or to test for explosives or, or residue of thermite. Now, this is what I'm going to go into here just real quickly, is there are national standards for an investigation. That's what all of us are asking for, an investigation that follows national standards and holds people accountable. Needless to say, an investigation of the 9-11 crime scene following the national investigation standards has never been conducted, and never will be, as Giuliani oversaw the illegal destruction of the evidence itself. To add insult to this injury, in 2003, New York City medical examiner Charles Hirsch revealed that in the mad scramble to get rid of the crime scene evidence, human remains from the World Trade Center had been left at the Fresh Kills landfill, where the debris was sorted and the steel was sold. In 2007, Eric Beck, a senior supervisor of the recycling facility that sifted the debris, admitted that some of those human remains ended up in a mixture that was used to pave roads and fill potholes in New York City. But as grotesque as such revelations are, they are not the most shocking part of Giuliani's 9-11 story. In the late 1990s, the mayor oversaw the creation of a state-of-the-art $13 million emergency command center to coordinate the city's disaster recovery and response efforts. Located on the 23rd floor of World Trade Center Building 7, just across Vesey Street from the Twin Towers, the center, dubbed by local press at the time as Giuliani's Bunker, included reinforced, bulletproof, and bomb-resistant walls, its own air supply and water tank, beds, showers to accommodate 30 people, and three backup generators. It could be used to monitor all of New York's emergency communications frequencies and was staffed 24 hours a day. 
And yet, remarkably, on the morning of 9-11, neither Mayor Giuliani nor any other city personnel or police or fire department officials were in the bunker after the Twin Tower strikes. As I told you guys before, it's very, it's very uh, funny. I was on my way to work, and uh, traffic was excellent. I received a call that uh, a small Cessna had hit the uh, World Trade Center. And I was asked to go and uh, man the uh, Office of Emergency Management. Upon arriving into the OEM uh, EOC, we noticed that everybody was gone. I saw coffee that was on a desk. Still, the smoke was still coming off the coffee. I saw, I saw uh, half-eaten sandwiches. So why wasn't the mayor and the city's emergency personnel in the location that had been purpose-built for just such an event? According to Giuliani, they had been told to evacuate because they had been given a warning that the Twin Towers were going to collapse. A warning that was evidently not passed on to any of the emergency personnel that were still working in the buildings. I went down to the scene and we set up a headquarters at 75 Barclay Street, which was right there with the police commissioner, the fire commissioner, mm-hmm. the head of emergency management. And we were operating out of there when we were told that the World Trade Center was going to collapse. And it did collapse before we could actually get out of the building. So we were trapped in the building for 10, 15 minutes and finally found an exit and got out, walked north and took a lot of people with us. Giuliani, in his own words, has admitted that he was warned that the World Trade Center was going to collapse. This despite the fact that there was no possible way for this to be predicted in the first hour of the unfolding disaster. Even more incredibly, despite being given this warning, no effort was made to pass it on to the police, firefighters, and other responders who were still working in and around the buildings. When precisely was this warning given? And by whom? Why, despite acting on this warning himself, did Giuliani make no effort to pass the warning on to others? Predictably, when confronted with these questions by activists during his 2008 presidential campaign, Giuliani merely smiled and denied that he had ever received such a warning. You reported to Peter Denning that on 9-11 that the World Trade houses were going to collapse. And... Excuse me. No steel structure in, in, in history has ever collapsed due to a fire. How come the people in the buildings weren't notified? And who, who else knew right. about this? And, and how do you sleep at night? Ma'am, I didn't know that the towers were going to collapse. He reported and also, Peter Jennings. No, no. You said no, no. Peter Jennings on ABC and video, also, you indeed said that the towers, uh, you were notified towers were going to collapse while you were in some... Um, not, sh- not sure exactly where you were prior to, but you said on ABC video with Peter Jennings in an interview um, that you were aware that towers were going to collapse in advance. We'd like to know who told you the towers were going to collapse in advance, sir. And also we'd like to know who else you told. Well, the fact is that uh, I didn't realize the towers would collapse. I never realized that. So where was the mayor on 9-11? On Pier 92, which was already set up as a functional command center due to a full-scale emergency drill by FEMA that, by a remarkable coincidence, had been scheduled for the following day. And we selected Pier 92 as our command center. And the reason Pier 92 was selected as the command center was because on the next day, on September 12th, Pier 92 was going to have a drill. 
It had hundreds of people here from FEMA, from the federal government, from the state, from the state emergency management office, and they were getting ready for a drill for biochemical attack. So that was going to be the place they were going to have the drill. The equipment was already there. So we were able to establish a command center there within three days that was two and a half to three times bigger than the command center that we had lost at Seven World Trade Center. And it was from there that the rest of the search and rescue effort was, um, was completed. Mayor Giuliani oversaw the illegal destruction of the 9-11 crime scene and is criminally liable for the deaths of hundreds of emergency workers for not passing on prior warnings about the collapses of the Twin Towers. It is no wonder, then, that the Fire Department of New York so passionately detests Giuliani for his actions in disgracing their fallen brothers and covering up the 9-11 crime. Rudy Giuliani has used the horrible events of September 11, 2001, to create a carefully crafted persona. But the fact is, what Rudy portrays is not a full picture of the decisions made that led, in our view, to the unnecessary deaths of our FDNY members and the attempt to stop the dignified recovery of those lost. The urban legend of America's mayor needs to be balanced by the truth. So what is the reward for Giuliani's criminal actions on 9-11? An offer to become the head of the Department of Homeland Security in the event of a Trump presidency, of course. This is the state of American politics, and this is precisely why a true investigation of what happened on 9-11 never has, and never will, be conducted by the U.S. government itself. Suspect 2. Former EPA Administrator Christine Todd Whitman The Dust Lady photo has become one of the iconic images of 9-11. The image of a woman, shocked and disoriented, completely covered in dust from the demolition of the Twin Towers, brings the nearly incomprehensible events of that day down to a human scale. But of course the Dust Lady was not the only one to feel the effects of the blanket of dust that descended on Manhattan after the towers fell. In the hours, days, and weeks that followed, thousands upon thousands of victims, first responders, emergency personnel, cleanup crews, and residents were subjected to the poisonous stew of asbestos, benzene, mercury, lead, cadmium, and other particulates, from which many are now dying. Dr. David Prezant, chief medical officer with the New York Fire Department, spent seven years examining more than 10,000 firefighters, those who were at the World Trade Center site after 9-11, and those who weren't. And we found an increase in all cancers combined, a 19% increase in cancers compared to the non-exposed World Trade Center group. Talk about the most pressing medical issues facing 9-11 first responders right now. Cancer. In the beginning, uh, in the first few years, it was respiratory, but now it's cancers. And this is just the first wave of cancers, the blood cancers, the leukemias, the organ cancers. But, uh, in five or ten more years, you're going to see the asbestos cancers. There'll be another wave of cancers. And um, like I tell everybody, this is a generation-long issue and a generation-long illness. Every morning I wake up, i got to take 33 pills within the course of the day. At 47 years old, I have lungs of an 80-year-old man that would have been a smoker. People say you have to forget about 9-11. And I say, how could I forget about 9-11 when every morning I got to take this medication and walk around with an oxygen tank? 
If the brave men and women who had rushed to the World Trade Center in the chaotic days after 9-11 to help with the search and rescue had done so knowing the risks they were facing, that would be one thing. But of course they did not. They had been given false assurances by Christine Todd Whitman, the EPA administrator who assured the public just days into the cleanup that the air was safe to breathe. You know asbestos was in there, is in those buildings, lead is in those buildings. There are the, the VOCs. However, the concentrations are such that they don't pose a health hazard. As the weeks and months dragged on, Whitman, the EPA, and its officials made statement after statement after statement, reaffirming that contaminant levels were low or non-existent, and that the air quality in Manhattan posed no public health concern. We now know that these reassurances were outright lies. On September 18th, the very same day that Whitman and the EPA were encouraging New Yorkers to return to work, the agency detected sulfur dioxide levels in the air so high that, according to one industrial hygienist, they exceeded the EPA's standard for a classification of hazardous. By that time, first responders were already reporting a range of health problems, including coughing, wheezing, eye irritation, and headaches. The evidence continued to pour in that there were serious health concerns for those in and around Manhattan, but the information was suppressed almost as quickly as it was discovered. When a local lab tested dust samples from near the World Trade Center site and found dangerous concentrations of fiberglass and asbestos, the New York State Department of Health warned local labs that they would lose their licenses if they process any more independent sampling. When U.S. Geological Survey scientists began performing tests on their own dust samples, they were shocked at the alphabet soup of heavy metals they found in it. They forwarded this information to the EPA, but the agency continued to assure the public that there was no evidence of long-term health risks. The drama continued to unfold as information poured in about benzene, lead, and other environmental toxins. Yet on September 18th, the EPA specifically advised the public against wearing respirators outside the World Trade Center restricted area. Then, just two weeks later, the agency distributed respirators to their own staffers at the EPA's Region 2 building on Broadway Street. As scientists, industrial hygienists, and even other government officials began to accuse the EPA of covering up the true extent of the problem in New York, the agency continued with its dogged assertion that the air was safe to breathe. It wasn't until 2003 that the EPA's own Inspector General revealed that the White House had been editing the agency's press releases all along, finding that the White House Council on Environmental Quality influenced, through the collaboration process, the information that EPA communicated to the public through its early press releases when it convinced EPA to add reassuring statements and delete cautionary ones. When new documents were released to the public in 2011, on the eve of the 10th anniversary of 9-11, it was discovered that this editing was even worse than originally feared. There were, uh, there were clear warnings, specifically on Water Street, which for those people in, in this area know is not far from Wall Street, that showed that the, the levels of contaminants in the air were too high for people to go back. That was removed, which was bad enough, and then replaced with and a recommendation that people go back to work. They were urged to go back, uh, even though the, uh, the early samples were 
showing that there were high levels of contaminants. And, and you point out also that in many cases they were telling people it was safe before they had even uh, finished conducting initial tests. <laughs> in, in, uh, in one email exchange that happens on the 13th, so it's just a day and a half later, um, the people in Washington at the White House uh, Council on Environmental Quality are telling the people up here, hey, Christine Whitman is coming up. She's going to talk to reporters because all the results so far have been so positive. Well, all the results so far showed almost nothing because there were almost no results. And yet they were, they were, they were committed to this message of reassurance despite the facts. And that's not the way it should happen. Outraged at the fact that they had been lied to and their lives put at risk, residents and workers in Lower Manhattan and Brooklyn sued Whitman and the EPA in 2004. In a 2006 ruling allowing the class action lawsuit to proceed, Judge Deborah A. Batts of Federal District Court in Manhattan excoriated Whitman, finding that her baseless assurances that the air was safe increased and may have in fact created the danger to people living and working in the area ruling that the EPA did, in fact, make misleading statements of safety about the air quality, Judge Batts said, The allegations in this case of Whitman's reassuring and misleading statements of safety after the September 11, 2001 attacks are without question conscience-shocking. Batts's decision was overturned by a panel of judges in 2008, who ruled that misleading the public and contributing to the health problems and deaths of untold Ground Zero workers was not conscience-shocking enough to override her immunity from prosecution as a federal agent. If Whitman has a conscience at all, it is evidently not shocked by any of these accusations. She has not only never conceded guilt or even expressed sorrow for the ongoing sickness and deaths that her actions helped bring about, she has repeatedly defended the actions of herself and the EPA in general. Statements that EPA officials made after 9-11 were based on the judgment of experienced environmental and health professionals at EPA, OSHA, and the CDC, who had analyzed the test data that 13 different organizations and agencies were collecting in Lower Manhattan. I do not recall any EPA scientist or experts responsible for reviewing this data ever advising me that the test data from Lower Manhattan showed that the air or water proposed long-term health risks for the general public. Whitman's lies are not just those of another self-serving politician looking to save their job or stay out of jail. They are the lies of someone who has contributed to the deteriorating health and even the death of thousands of innocent men and women. For the victims of Christine Todd Whitman, the EPA, the White House Council on Environmental Quality, and all of the other agencies and officers who lied to the public about the health risks in New York, 9-11 is not a single day of horror that occurred a decade and a half ago. It is a slowly unfolding nightmare, one that every day brings them one step closer to their grave. The Dust Lady is one of the icons of the tragedy of that day. Should it be any surprise, then, that she, too, was ravaged by 9-11-related diseases and ultimately died of cancer last year? She was not the first person to die from the aftermath of 9-11. And, thanks to Christine Todd Whitman and the liars at the EPA who have consigned untold thousands to a similar fate, she will not be the last. My name is David Miller. On September 11, 2001, 
along with hundreds of my fellow troops, I went to ground zero. No one asked us, no orders were given. We went because our city, our country, our neighbors were under attack. And we knew what to do, or at least we thought we did. On September 13th, we marched back in, in groups of twos and threes at first, and then dozens until there must have been more than 200 of us, carrying ropes, ladders, tools of every kind, back into the smoke and the poison and rubble where we reached an intersection with hundreds of civilians cheering us on. Our uniforms were torn and soiled. Our resolve was simple, to stay and dig as long as we had any hope to save anybody. I want to tell you about how sick so many of these brave men and women have become. I want to tell you about how the mayor refused to accept the fact that not dozens, not hundreds, but many thousands of us were contaminated, sickened and poisoned by the most toxic combinations of building materials in the history of disaster relief, and that for five terrible years, he ignored that fact. Five years of our family members watching us drop dead. And every time popular mechanics calls the people of this movement nuts, these propagandists, professional liars and tools who cannot even by any stretch of the imagination be considered journalists, strike another nail into the coffin of another rescue worker. Suspect 3 9-11 Commission Executive Director, Philip Zelikow. It took President Bush an extraordinary 441 days after 9-11 to establish a commission to investigate the events of September 11, 2001. And it was not just the case that Bush was slow in acting. He actively resisted any investigation for as long as he could, taking the extraordinary and unprecedented step of personally asking Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle to limit Congress's investigation into those events. In the end, the commission was severely underfunded, severely rushed, and, as Commission Chairman Thomas Kane later admitted, We think the commission in many ways was set up to fail. But the most unmistakable sign that Bush was only interested in appointing a cover-up commission to investigate the largest attack on U.S. soil in modern history was his initial choice for commission chairman. Today I'm pleased to announce my choice for commission chairman, Dr. Henry Kissinger. Dr. Kissinger, do you have any concerns about once the commission begins its work, if fingers point to valuable allies, say Saudi Arabia, for example, um, the implications, the policy implications this could have to the United States, particularly at this delicate time? Uh, I have been given every assurance uh, by the president that we should uh, that we should go where the facts lead us not even the new york times could believe that henry kissinger the consummate washington insider could pretend to conduct an independent fact-finding investigation into 911 it is tempting to wonder if the choice of mr kissinger is not a clever maneuver by the white house to contain an investigation it long opposed the times editorialized after the announcement Kissinger may have been prepared for such polite disagreement with his appointment, but he was not prepared to meet the 9-11 widows whose tireless efforts had forced the creation of the commission in the first place. Several family members approached Kissinger and requested a meeting at his office in New York. 
Prior to the meeting, Kristen Breitweiser conducted a thorough investigation of Kissinger's potential conflicts of interest. Probably much to the chagrin of some of the people in the room, Lori asked some very pointed questions. Would you have any Saudi American clients that you would like to tell us about? And he was very uncomfortable, kind of twisting and turning on the couch. And then she asked whether he had any clients by the name of bin Laden. And he just about fell off his couch. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger stepped down from the position Friday. We thought the meeting went well. Kissinger was dethroned, and the commission went ahead under Chairman Thomas Kane and Vice Chair Lee Hamilton. But while Kissinger's appointment and resignation received all the attention, the White House was busy slipping another agent into the commission through the back door. In January of 2003, just weeks after Kissinger stepped down, it was quietly announced that Philip D. Zelikow would take on the role of executive director. As executive director, Zelikow picked the areas of investigation, the briefing materials, the topics for hearings, the witnesses, and the lines of questioning for witnesses. In effect, this was the man in charge of running the investigation itself. So who was Philip Zelikow? The commission's press release announcing his position described him as a man of high stature who has distinguished himself as an academician, lawyer, author, and public servant. Although they noted his position at the University of Virginia and his previous role as executive director for the National Commission on Federal Electoral Reform, Curiously missing from this brief bio are the multiple conflicts of interest that show how the Bush administration essentially put one of its own in charge of investigating how the Bush administration failed on 9-11. In 1995, Zelikow co-authored a book with Bush's national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice. He was part of the transition team that helped the Bush administration take over the White House from the Clinton administration. He was even a member of Bush's post-9-11 Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. But perhaps most incredibly, Zelikow actually authored the Bush administration's 2002 National Security Strategy that outlined the preemptive war doctrine that would be used against Iraq. This, however, is something that not even 9-11 Commissioners Kane or Hamilton themselves knew at the time the commission was formed. Zelikow was the author of a very important document issued by the White House in September 2002 that really turned military doctrine on its head and said that the United States could become involved in preemptive war, preemptive defense, that we could attack a nation that didn't pose an immediate military threat to this country. And obviously in September 2002, it sure appeared that that document was being written with one target in mind, Iraq. Um, now, as I say, the the author of the document at the time was anonymous. We didn't know that Philip Zelikow had written this thing, uh, and that becomes known, I think, widely on the staff only in the final months of the 9-11 Commission investigation, and it appeared to pose yet another conflict of interest for Zelikow. Uh, just to be clear, the, the preemptive uh, doctrine memo comes out in September of 2002. The commission is created formally in... Uh, December 2002. And Duquesne and Hamilton, when they hire Zelikow, are they aware of his uh, are they aware of his role as the author of the preemptive doctrine? I don't believe so. These conflicts of interest were not merely theoretical. After the victim's family members discovered Zelikow's links to the Bush administration, he was forced to recuse himself from the proceedings of the commission, which he himself was directing, that had to do with the Bush White House transition or the National Security Council. Hearing of Zelikow's appointment, 
Former counterterrorism czar Richard Clark, who Zelikow helped to demote during the Bush transition, remarked that the fix is in, wondering aloud, could anyone have a more obvious conflict of interest than Zelikow? Key staffers and even one of the commissioners threatened to quit the commission altogether when learning of Zelikow's history. When the 9-11 victims' family members discovered Zelikow's links, they protested his appointment. But unlike with Kissinger, this time their concerns were dismissed, and Zelikow plowed ahead. As even Zelikow himself admits, his ties to the very figures he was supposedly investigating are a legitimate concern, and any real investigation of the 9-11 cover-up would begin with him. There's a a whole welter of conspiracy theories about 9-11 floating around the internet, in video cassettes, and there's a whole cottage industry in this, um, which if you haven't read much about it, then you're a fortunate person. Um, I, I get a lot of this. I'm actually, I actually figure very largely in a number of the key conspiracy theories. Um, no, but, no, but to be fair, I work with Condi Rice, right? I worked with her in, in the administration of Bush 41. Uh, so, you know, I could, be, uh, I could be read as the plausible henchman executing the cover-up. Uh, no, but, uh, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a legitimate concern, especially if I hadn't had 81 other staffers keeping their eagle eye on me. <laughs> Conveniently left out of Zelikow's story about the 81 staffers keeping their eye on his decisions is that they were staffers who were hired by him and under his complete control. In fact, Zelikow took over the hiring of the commission staff and even stopped staffers from communicating directly with the commissioners themselves. In the first few months, the 9-11 commissioners themselves rarely even visited the commission because Zelikow denied them their own offices or the ability to hire their own staffers. The most remarkable example of Zelikow's dictatorial control came in March 2003, just three months after the commission's 16-month investigation began. It was at that time, before the commission had even convened a single hearing, that Zelikow, along with longtime associate and commission consultant Ernest May, co-wrote a complete outline of the final report. Before the, before the staff even had its first meeting, Zelikow had written, along with his former professor, Ernest May, a detailed outline of the commission's report, complete, as Sheenan put it, with chapter headings, subheadings, and sub-subheadings. When Kane and Hamilton were later shown this outline, they worried that it would be seen as evidence that the report's outcome had been predetermined. So the three of them decided to keep it a secret from the rest of the staff. When the staff did finally learn about this outline a year later, they were alarmed. Some of them circulated a parody entitled The Warren Commission Report Preemptive Outline. One of its chapter headings read, Single Bullet, We Haven't Seen the Evidence Yet, But Really, We're Sure. The implication was that the crucial chapter in the Zelikow May outline could have been headed Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. We haven't seen the evidence yet, but really, we're sure. So what exactly did Zelikow do as executive director? He allowed information in the commission's final report derived from illegal CIA torture sessions, despite not having access to the evidence of those sessions themselves, which were later illegally destroyed. 
This included the testimony of alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was waterboarded 183 times in a single month, whose children were kidnapped by the CIA, who was told that his children were going to be tortured with insects, and who eventually confessed to a whole series of plots, including bombing a bank that didn't exist at the time he was arrested. More than one quarter of the footnotes in the final commission report source from this torture testimony, and as Zelikow himself admitted, quite a bit, if not most, of the commission's information on the 9-11 plot itself came from this testimony. Zelikow denied interviews and documents to staffers investigating the Saudi connection to the attacks, eventually firing one of them and removing the text of their investigation from the final report. He personally rewrote a commission staff statement to suggest a systematic link between Al-Qaeda and Iraq before 9-11, outraging the authors of the original statement. He worked behind his own staffer's back to stop them from serving the Pentagon a subpoena to answer about information NORAD was withholding from the commission. He sat on a proposal to open a criminal investigation into FAA and military officials who lied to the commission for months, and then forwarded that proposal not to the Justice Department, who could have brought criminal charges, but to the Inspector General, who could not. And he covered up information on Able Danger, a military intelligence team that had identified several of the alleged 9-11 hijackers in the country before 9-11. After the initial disclosure, Dr. Zelikow came to me at the end of the meeting, gave me his card and said, what you said today is is critically important, very important. Please come see me when we return to Washington, D.C. I returned to Washington, D.C., January of 2004. Call in. They say, we want to see you. Stand by. Nothing happens. A week goes by. I call again. They say, we don't need you to come in. We, we have all the information on able danger we need. Thank you anyway. And that was where it ended. All right. So the information that you told Dr. Zelikow in Afghanistan about the CIA interfering with your ability to provide actionable intelligence to the United States government, intelligence that might have helped them find out who caused uh, 9-11, you right. were not permitted to testify about. That's correct. Okay. From the initial outline to the final report, Zelikow carefully guided the process hiring and firing the staff, directing their research efforts, deciding on witnesses, scrubbing information, and shielding his former colleagues in the White House from criticism. But perhaps more remarkable than the fact that the fix was in from the moment he took over the commission and began working on the predictive outline of the final report is that he had in fact written about 9-11 and its eventual aftermath in 1998, three years before September 11th. In an article entitled Catastrophic Terrorism, Tackling the New Danger, written for the Council on Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs in November 1998, Zelikow and co-authors Ashton Carter and John Deutsch ask readers to imagine a catastrophic act of terrorism like the destruction of the World Trade Center. Like Pearl Harbor, the event would divide our past and future into a before and after. The United States might respond with draconian measures scaling back civil liberties, allowing wider surveillance of citizens, detention of suspects, and use of deadly force. More violence could follow, either future terrorist attacks or U.S. counterattacks. Belatedly, Americans would judge their leaders negligent for not addressing terrorism more urgently. Zelikow's amazing prediction becomes somewhat less remarkable when we learn his own self-described expertise in the creation and management of public myth. In a separate 1998 article on public myths, 
Zelikow identifies generational myths that are formed by those pivotal events that become etched in the minds of those who have lived through them, before noting that the current set of public myths, formed during the New Deal in 1933, are currently fading. Convenient for Zelikow, then, that the Pearl Harbor event that would define the next generational myth, known as the War on Terror, would arrive just three years later, and that he would be in charge of the commission, tasked with creating and managing the public perception of that myth. Indeed, given his central role in the cover-up of 9-11 and deflecting concern away from legitimate 9-11 suspects, any true investigation into the events of September 11th would involve a thorough interrogation of Philip D. Zelikow. No, to, no, to be fair, I worked with Condi Rice, right? I worked with her in, in the administration of Bush 41. Uh, so, you know, I could be, uh, I could be read as the plausible henchman executing the cover-up. Uh, no, but, uh, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a legitimate concern. Suspect 4. Former CIA case officer, Robert Baer. A 21-year veteran of the CIA, Robert Baer is billed as one of America's most elite intelligence case officers. Having worked field assignments in Lebanon, Sudan, Morocco, Iraq, and other international hotspots, he was praised by Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Seymour Hersh as perhaps the best on-the-ground field officer in the Middle East. He has written multiple books based on his experiences with the agency. He has worked as a consultant on documentary and television projects. He regularly appears as a commentator on CNN and other news outlets, and he writes a regular column on intelligence matters for time. George Clooney's character in Syriana, Bob Barnes, is based on Bear and his experiences with the CIA. And 90% of what's left is in the Middle East. This is a fight to the death. I think we've got something that utilizes your specific skill set. His money's in a lot of dark corners. I want you to take him from his hotel, drug him, put him in the front of a car, and run a truck into him at 50 miles an hour. It's good to have you back in town, Bob. Robert Baer retired from the CIA in 1997 and received the agency's Career Intelligence Medal the following year. In short, he is a serious and well-respected career intelligence official. All of this makes it particularly stunning that in 2008, he told a team of citizen journalists in Los Angeles that he knew a man who cashed out the day before 9-11. last thing I would leave you with is National Reconnaissance Office was running a, a drill, a plane crashed into their building, and you know they're staffed by DOD I and know CIA. The, right? I know the guy that went into his broker in San Diego and, and said, cash me out, it's going down tomorrow. Really? Yeah. That tells us something. Wow. Yeah. That tells us something. Well, his brother worked in the White House. Given Robert Baer's experience and training, it is difficult to comprehend just how significant the information that he just casually admits here really is. We are left with only two possibilities. Either Bear is lying, or he has direct knowledge of someone whose brother worked at the White House who had foreknowledge of the 9-11 plot. There is no middle ground here. The man Robert Baer claims to know is at least an accessory before the fact to the crimes of 9-11, if not an actual accomplice or co-conspirator in those crimes. By failing to report this information to the investigative authorities, 
Bear leaves himself open to being an accessory after the fact to those same crimes. Title 18, Section 3 of the U.S. Code defines the criteria for an accessory after the fact to a crime committed against the United States. Whoever, knowing that an offense against the United States has been committed, receives, relieves, comforts, or assists the offender in order to hinder or prevent his apprehension, trial, or punishment, is an accessory after the fact. Given the exceptionally grave nature of this admission and its repercussions, one would suppose that Bear has been questioned by other media and or the FBI and made to discuss in detail precisely who it was who cashed out and how he knew about the 9-11 plot in advance. But one would be wrong. Since making this stunning admission to the cameras of We Are Change Los Angeles, no one has ever asked Bear for more information about the case. So what does Robert Bear say about the possibility of a 9-11 inside job? In 2007, writing about the CIA's admission that they illegally destroyed the videotaped interrogations of high-profile terror suspects, Bear said, I myself have felt the pull of the conspiracy theorists who believe that 9-11 was an inside job, somehow pulled off by the U.S. government. For the record, I don't believe that the World Trade Center was brought down by our own explosives, or that a rocket, rather than an airliner, hit the Pentagon. I spent a career in the CIA trying to orchestrate plots, wasn't all that good at it, and certainly couldn't carry off 9-11. Nor could the real pros I had the pleasure to work with. But just one year before, he gave a very different answer to Thomas Hartman on his radio show. So, are, are you just, you know, personally of the opinion? I mean, not obviously you can't speak for the CIA or your your previous activities with the agency, but are you of the opinion that there was an aspect of inside job to 9-11 within the U.S. government? There's that possibility. The evidence points at it. And why is it not being investigated? Why isn't the WMD story being investigated? Why, isn't, why hasn't anybody been held accountable for 9-11? Um, I mean, you know, we, we held people accountable after Pearl Harbor. I mean, you know, why has there been no change of command? Why has there been no political repercussions? Why has there been no um, any sort of exposure on this? It, it really well, makes you wonder. So why is Robert Baer hiding the identity of a 9-11 accomplice or co-conspirator? And will the FBI be asking him for details of this story anytime soon? Until the American public shows some interest in this shocking admission, it is unlikely that anything will happen. Suspect 5. Former Commander-in-Chief of NATO, General Ralph Eberhardt. According to the official story of September 11, 2001, four hijacked airliners flew wildly off course over the most sensitive airspace in the United States for 109 minutes without being intercepted by a single fighter jet. As Commander-in-Chief of the North American Aerospace Defense Command on 9-11, General Ralph Eberhardt was in charge of the largest failure to defend North American airspace in history. Rather than accepting blame for his command's complete lack of response that morning, however, or even expressing regret about what had occurred, General Eberhardt instead spent the rest of his career attempting to pin the blame for this failure squarely on the FAA. Uh, you've read a lot uh, uh, over the, the last uh, two and a half years about what 
NORAD did and did not do that morning and should have done in the years and, and months leading up to that attack. Ground truth is that NORAD was charged to support the FAA in the event of a hijacking. Our role was to respond to the request from FAA to get airborne, fly, shadow the hijacked airplane, say whether the hijacked airplane was following the instructions of, of the air traffic controller of, of FAA and in a terrible situation that that airplane crashed or that airplane exploded in midair, document that tragedy. Although Eberhardt's version of events was cemented into place as the official story of 9-11 propounded by the 9-11 Commission, they are in fact self-serving lies. In Eberhardt's version of events, NORAD is completely subordinate to the FAA. In reality, however, NORAD is specifically tasked with dealing with such events itself, not waiting passively for FAA orders. NORAD's own regulations for dealing with hijacked jets specifically state that FAA authorization for interceptor operations is not used for intercept and airborne surveillance of hijacked aircraft within the continental United States. These standard operating procedures were not merely theoretical or some obscure regulation that would have been unfamiliar to the four-star general in charge of defending American airspace. In the year 2000 alone, NORAD scrambled fighters in response to unknowns, pilots who didn't file or diverted from flight plans or used the wrong frequency, 129 times. Perhaps even more remarkable, however, is that Eberhardt and NORAD offered not one, not two, not three, but four separate timelines of their complete lack of response that morning. The first, offered by Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Richard Myers just two days after the attacks, during his confirmation hearings in the Senate, claimed that not a single fighter was scrambled to intercept any of the airliners until after the incident at the Pentagon. One week later, NORAD released a partial timeline that indicated they had in fact received advance notification about three of the planes with as much as 20 minutes warning more than enough time for the planes to have been intercepted. A third story emerged in May 2003. This time, NORAD was only contacted about Flight 175 at 9.05 a.m., three minutes after it crashed into the South Tower. The official story, found in the 9-11 Commission's final report, was that NORAD received no advance notice of any of the flights. Eberhardt and the military were completely exonerated. However, Eberhardt had testified in October 2001 that NORAD had been notified about Flight 77 at 9.24 a.m. The 9-11 Commission determined that this was a lie. Regardless of the truth or untruth of any of these accounts, the simple fact is that, according to the 9-11 Commission itself, Eberhardt had lied to Congress, which is in fact a crime. By the 9-11 Commission's own account, Eberhardt should have been tried. But Eberhardt's lies do not end there. Many people will talk about that they, they knew that there was going to be an attack. They knew that people were going to take over uh, an aircraft and fly it into a building. I can tell you that there was no credible intelligence at that time to go build a defense against that type of attack. Tragically, we were wrong. We were wrong. 
Once again, Eberhardt's depiction of events is a self-serving and easily demonstrable lie. Not only had NORAD envisioned such a scenario, they had been training for it extensively in the years leading up to 9-11. Between October 1998 and September 2001, NORAD had conducted 28 exercise events involving hijackings. At least five of those hijack scenarios involved a suicide crash into a high-value target. Furthermore, at least six of the exercises took place completely within American airspace, putting to rest the oft-heard excuse that NORAD wasn't prepared for threats from within the U.S. Another note that would be of interest to prosecutors looking at potential foreknowledge of the 9-11 attacks pertains to Eberhardt's dual role as Commander-in-Chief of U.S. Space Command, where he was responsible for setting something called the Infocon Threat Level. Established in March 1999, the Infocon Threat Level was designed as a measure of the threat to Defense Department computer systems and networks, and different levels required different protocols for securing communications and information systems. At 9.09 p.m. on September 10, 2001, less than 12 hours before the attacks began, Eberhardt reduced Infocon to Level 5, the lowest threat level, making it easier for hackers to compromise Defense Department systems and controls. Eberhardt has never been asked about this change in the public record. There are a laundry list of other questionable actions that Eberhardt took on 9-11. His failure to implement military control over U.S. airspace. His decision to drive from Peterson Air Force Base to NORAD Cheyenne Mountain Control Center at 9.30 a.m., right in the middle of the attacks, despite knowing this would involve loss of communication for part of the drive, and the fact that it took him 45 minutes to complete the 30-minute trip. His decision to ground all fighter jets by ordering them to battle stations instead of ordering them to scramble at 9.49am. And even NORAD's inability to turn over basic documentation to government investigators. The official story of 9-11 is a lie. But Eberhardt's story is a lie within that lie, designed to absolve himself and other members of the U.S. military charged with American airspace that morning from the most catastrophic failure in that mission in their history. And not only did Eberhardt survive with his career intact, he was praised as a 9-11 hero and moved into the private sector after leaving NORAD in 2004 as chairman and board member of a number of companies that directly benefited from the post-9-11 police state and the post-9-11 war on terror. Ralph E. Eberhardt remains at large. We have a problem here. We have a hijacked aircraft headed towards New York. Is this, is this real world or exercise? Suspect 6. The Dancing Israelis. Some evil is just... It can't be explained. Are, the, are these people happy? Are they, are they joyous no. now? Are they celebrating? Oh, absolutely. Thank They're celebrating. God. There's one report. I, this has not been confirmed, but there's several reports that there was a, a, a cell, one of these cells, across the Hudson River. And they got on the... This is the report. I emphasize, I don't know this for a fact, but there's several witnesses who say this happened. They got on the roof of the building to look across. They knew what was going to happen. Yeah. They were waiting for it to happen. And when it happened, they celebrated. They... They jump for joy. In the days after 9-11, while Ground Zero continued to smolder, millions heard Dan Rather and various media outlets repeat vague and unconfirmed reports of arrests that took place that day. 
These rumors held that Middle Eastern men, presumably Arabs, were arrested in explosive-packed vans in various places around the city on September 11th, and that some had even been photographing and celebrating those events. What most do not realize is that those reports were not mere rumors, and we now have thousands of pages of FBI, CIA, and DOJ reports documenting those arrests. My binoculars, and I could see the towers from my window, and this is where I, you know, I'm looking, and all of a sudden, down there, I see this van park, and I see three guys on top of the van, and I could see that they were like happy, you know, they 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 were they didn't look shocked to me, you know, they didn't look shocked. The men were spotted shortly after 8:46 a.m. Yet somehow, at this early stage. Just minutes after the first plane strike on the World Trade Center, they were already positioned in a parking lot in Liberty State Park, taking pictures of the towers and celebrating. They left the scene shortly after being spotted, and at 3.31 p.m., the FBI issued an all-points bulletin advising officers in the greater New York area to be on the lookout for a white 2000 Chevrolet van with urban moving system sign on back. At 3.56 p.m., the van was spotted traveling eastward on State Route 3 in New Jersey and pulled over by Officer Scott DiCarlo and Sergeant Dennis Rivelli of the East Rutherford Police Department. Inside, they found five men. Sivan Kurzberg and his brother Paul, Yaron Schmel, Odette Elner, and Omar Marmari. A major terrorist manhunt began, and just six hours after the attack, the van was stopped at a roadblock by patrolman Scott DiCarlo. We were asked to detain the van and the passengers. They were just removed from the vehicle, patted down for safety precaution, and, uh, you know, detained. 911 call at 410 Park. I think once the uh, FBI arrived, one of them stated that they were on our side. There's something to that effect. According to the police report of the incident, Sivan Kurzberg told Officer DiCarlo, We are Israeli. We are not your problem. Your problems are our problems. The Palestinians are the problem. Their official story, they were just Israeli tourists working for a moving company who had heard about the first World Trade Center strike and rushed to get a better view of the events. They told interrogators they were working for Urban Moving, a shipping and storage firm run by an Israeli businessman who often employed Israeli students without work permits. The men say there was an innocent explanation for what was found in the van and their behavior on 9-11. They were, they say, simply on a working holiday. We heard in the news that one of the plane was uh, crashing down the building, and we thought it was an accident at the beginning. So we went up to the roof of Oba moving, and we saw the building burning. There is a better view from a building in Jersey that is up a hill, straight line to the World Trade Center. We decided to go up there. It's like two, three minutes from the office. Stand over there and take some pictures. Everyone wants a picture like this in his camera. Although this narrative is still trotted out when the story of the dancing Israelis is raised in the media, it is an easily demonstrable lie. FBI reports confirmed that the men were not taking somber pictures of a horrific event. When their 76 pictures were developed... They revealed the men had indeed been celebrating, smiling, hugging each other, and high-fiving. One of the pictures even featured Sivan Kurzberg holding a lighter up with the burning tower in the background. 
And these were no ordinary tourists. Oded Elner had $4,700 stuffed into his sock. They lied to the police about where they had been that morning. They were carrying plane tickets for immediate departure to different places around the globe. The FBI confirmed that two of the men had ties to Israeli intelligence and came to suspect that they had indeed been on a mission for the Mossad. And of course, after returning to Israel, Elner claimed on national Israeli TV that they had been sent there to document the event. And at that point, we were taken for another round of questioning, this time related to our allegedly being members of Mossad. The fact of the matter is, we are coming from a country that experiences terror daily. Our purpose was to document the event. Their purpose was to document the event? But how could they possibly have known what event they were documenting at that point, before the second plane strike, when those few who even knew about the situation had assumed it to be an accident or pilot error? And when did they arrive at the parking lot to document the event anyway? The FBI reports show how the men gave confused and often conflicting accounts of when and how they learned about what was happening and when they arrived at the parking lot. Oded Elner even said they had arrived there shortly after 8 a.m., which would have been 45 minutes before the attacks even began. This is in line with one of the eyewitnesses that had placed their urban moving systems van at the parking lot at 8 a.m. How could they have been in place and ready to document the event unless they knew what was about to happen? Any way you cut it, this story is unbelievable. Men with documented connections to Israeli intelligence and working in the United States without appropriate permits were detained after having been caught celebrating the attack on the World Trade Center at a time when no one knew that the WTC strike was an attack. So surely these men are locked behind bars to this day, right? Surely they were transferred to Guantanamo and held without trial for 15 years as part of the war on terror, weren't they? No. They were immediately transferred to federal custody, held for 71 days, and then deported back to Israel. The owner of the Urban Moving Systems Company that had employed them, Dominic Souter, was investigated by the FBI too. They concluded that Urban Moving may have been providing cover for an Israeli intelligence operation, and even seized records and computer systems from the company's offices. When they went back to question him again on September 14th, he had fled back to Israel. And what about the dancing Israelis' pictures themselves? The Justice Department destroyed their copies on January 27, 2014. And these intelligence agents on an intelligence mission who were there to document the event of 9-11 before anyone knew 9-11 was taking place? Don't worry, they were just spying on Arab terrorists. And while the FBI or certain sources might believe that in fact they were Israeli intelligence, they don't believe that the U.S. was a target, that they were actually investigating Muslim groups? They believe if this was an intelligence operation by Israel, that it was focused on the Islamic groups uh, and charities that raise money for groups that are considered by uh, U.S. law enforcement and others terrorist groups. And you'll note that after September 11th, the U.S. moved on many of these groups with indictments, arrests, raids on their headquarters, something that hadn't happened prior to this. These are groups that Israel believes have been funding Hamas and other terrorist organizations? Groups that are responsible for most of the suicide bombings there. But this story is not merely preposterous on its face. Even the implications of this story are themselves preposterous. If indeed the official story is a ridiculous lie, then are we to believe that these crack Israeli Mossad operatives, who were presumably aware of the attack that was about to take place, had been sent to 
photograph the burning tower from a parking lot across the Hudson River? And that these specially trained intelligence professionals on their super-secret mission were celebrating, high-fiving, and going out of their way to be noticed in performance of their task? This is equally preposterous. The only other possible conclusion is that these men were serving merely as a distraction, that they were not there to photograph for Israeli intelligence one of the most heavily photographed scenes in the world on that morning, but instead to be noticed and arrested as a way to divert attention from a much bigger and more sinister story. So if they were meant to distract from a bigger story, what story could that possibly be? It has been more than 16 years since a civilian working for the Navy was charged with passing secrets to Israel. Jonathan Pollard pled guilty to conspiracy to commit espionage and is serving a life sentence. At first, Israeli leaders claimed Pollard was part of a rogue operation, but later took responsibility for his work. Now Fox News has learned some U.S. investigators believe that there are Israelis again very much engaged in spying in and on the U.S., who may have known things they didn't tell us before September 11th. Fox News correspondent Carl Cameron has details in the first of a four-part series. Since September 11th, more than 60 Israelis have been arrested or detained, either under the new Patriot anti-terrorism law or for immigration violations. A handful of active Israeli military were among those detained, according to investigators, who say some of the detainees also failed polygraph questions when asked about alleged surveillance activities against and in the United States. There is no indication that the Israelis were involved in the 9-11 attacks, but investigators suspect that the Israelis may have gathered intelligence about the attacks in advance and not shared it. A highly placed investigator said there are, quote, tie-ins, but when asked for details, he flatly refused to describe them, saying, quote, evidence linking these Israelis to 911 is classified. I cannot tell you about evidence that has been gathered. It's classified information. Asked this week about another sprawling investigation and the detention of 60 Israelis since September 11th, the Bush administration treated the questions like hot potatoes. I would just refer you to the Department of Justice with it. I'm not familiar with the report. I'm aware that uh, some Israeli citizens have been detained. With respect to why they are being detained and the other aspects of, of your question, whether it's because they are in intelligence services or what they were doing, I will uh, defer to the Department of Justice and the FBI to answer that. Beyond the 60 apprehended or detained and many deported since September 11th, another group of 140 Israeli individuals have been arrested and detained in this year in what government documents describe as, quote, an organized intelligence gathering operation designed to, quote, penetrate government facilities. Most of those individuals said they had served in the Israeli military, which is compulsory there, but they also had, most of them, intelligence expertise and either worked for Amdocs or other companies in Israel that specialize in wiretapping. Earlier this week, the Israeli embassy here in Washington denied any spying against or in the United States. Carl, what about this question of advanced knowledge of what was going to happen on 9-11? How clear are investigators that some Israeli agents may have known something? Well, it's very explosive information, obviously, and there's a great deal of evidence that they say they have collected, none of it necessarily conclusive. It's more when they put it all together. A bigger question, they say, is how could they not have known? Almost a direct quote, Brett. The most phenomenal part of this report is not that it was eventually erased from the web by Fox News itself, but that it ever made it to the air at all. In December of 2001, 
Fox News investigative reporter Carl Cameron filed an explosive four-part series that went in-depth into an Israeli art student spying ring that had been under investigation before 9-11, extensive Israeli wiretapping of sensitive U.S. government communications, and the 60 Israeli spies that were detained in the wake of the September 11th attacks. Unsurprisingly, the story was quickly dropped, and no mainstream journalists dared to continue probing into the matter. This is the real story of Israeli spies and 9-11. Not some vague rumors about some dancing Israelis, but an FBI dragnet that swept up the largest foreign spying ring ever caught red-handed on American soil. And although the FBI were convinced that these spies knew about 9-11 in advance, their investigations were stifled and the issue was swept under the rug. Rather than making Israel enemy number one in the war on terror, Israel remains to this day the U.S.'s most important ally. And if I'm fortunate enough to be elected president, the United States will reaffirm we have a strong and enduring national interest in Israel's security. In 2001, weeks after the attacks on New York City and on Washington, and frankly, the attacks on all of us, Attacks that perpetrated, and they were perpetrated, by the Islamic fundamentalists. Mayor Rudy Giuliani visited Israel to show solidarity with terror victims. I sent my plane because I backed the mission for Israel 100%. But perhaps this is understandable. After all, we all remember how Yasser Arafat gloated about 9-11 and said it was good for Palestinians, right? Oh wait, that wasn't Yasser Arafat. It was Benjamin Netanyahu. The Israeli newspaper Ma'ariv has reported Israel's former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has publicly said the September 11th attacks have been good for Israel. Netanyahu said, quote, We're benefiting from one thing. And that is the attack on the Twin Towers and Pentagon and the American struggle in Iraq. My name is Donald Trump, and I'm a big fan of Israel. And frankly, a strong prime minister is a strong Israel. And you truly have a great prime minister. In Benjamin Netanyahu, there's nobody like him. He's a winner. He's highly respected. He's highly thought of by all. And people really do have great, great respect for what's happened in Israel. So vote for Benjamin, terrific guy, terrific leader, great for Israel. Given that the ultimate consequence of 9-11 was the beginning of a now 15-year-long struggle to transform the Middle East, a struggle that the neocons that went on to populate the Bush administration had been openly advocating since the clean-break policy paper in the mid-1990s, it isn't hard to see how the September 11th attacks were indeed a boon for Israel. But information linking Israeli spies to advanced knowledge of 9-11 remains classified information. In a world of true justice, the dancing Israelis and other Israeli spies with insider advanced knowledge of the 9-11 attacks, who openly celebrated those attacks, would be the targets of the war on terror, not its beneficiaries. All right, friends, that is the end of today's exploration, but it is obviously not the end of the exploration of the crimes of 9-11. 
we have only begun to scratch the surface of the suspect list, and I have no doubt that the well-informed listeners of this podcast will be able to come up with many more people that should be on that list, individuals who could be similarly prosecuted for their role in the crimes of that day. In fact, I would highly encourage such an exercise if there are any intrepid Corbett reporters who want to try their hand at creating their own 9-11 suspect-style report. Don't wait for orders from headquarters, just do it. Post it to your blog or your YouTube channel or wherever you can, and I will let others know that it's out there. As always, today's podcast is just the beginning of this research, not the end. And on that note, please do make use of this research. A complete hyperlinked transcript of this entire report is available at corbettreport.com suspects. This transcript encapsulates years of research, a month of writing, and a month of painstaking video editing by the incomparable video editor Brock West. So I implore you to take advantage of it. It's there. It's a resource. Please help spread it around. I'd like to thank all of the Corbett Report members who make this research possible. All of those subscribers who support this website with as little as $1 a month, and without whom today's report, let alone all the rest of the work I produce, literally wouldn't be possible. For nine years, I've been researching the truth about 9-11 and other topics that mainstream and respectable researchers won't go near. It is a labor of passion born from my own commitment to truth and justice. But it isn't popular work, it doesn't win awards, and it isn't making anyone rich, least of all me. But I am blessed and humbled to be in a position to do this work thanks only to the graciousness of your support. So to each and every one of you, thank you sincerely. To those who are not yet subscribers to The Corporate Report, but who do appreciate this work, I highly encourage you to think about signing up for a membership. Once again, as little as $1 a month, although more is always appreciated, will get you a login for the website allowing you to comment on the site and access the subscriber newsletter, which is posted to the website every weekend. And for all of those who've reached out in the past to let me know they don't do PayPal or Bitcoin, you're in luck. I have just signed up for a brand new Patreon account, so you can now become a patron via patreon.com slash CorbettReport, and details are available at CorbettReport.com support. Thank you again for your time, and until next time, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, signing off. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.